Well, tonight as we prepare our hearts to take communion together, I want us to look at the very heart of the gospel, or as I've titled tonight's message, The Guts of the Gospel. We've come here tonight, like we do every Good Friday, to remember, to think back, to call to mind all that Jesus suffered to save us from sin. And as we read the biblical accounts of the passion of Christ, we can only imagine all that he went through. But this evening, we get to hear from someone who was there and saw all of it with his own eyes. I'm referring to Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who in his first letter to the suffering saints scattered all over Asia Minor, described himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. For those of you that may be visiting with us tonight, we've been studying through 1 Peter on Sunday mornings, and this past Sunday, we worked our way through chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, well, I should say verses 18 through 23, where Peter exhorted us to submit to unfair, unreasonable, undeserved treatment from those in authority over us, our masters as they're described uh, here in this text. And he put forth Jesus as the ultimate example of what it looks like to humbly and patiently and quietly endure suffering for the sake of righteousness or for doing what is right. Verse 21, you may remember these words, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." I find it intriguing that even though Peter was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, rather than using his own words to describe it, he borrowed the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and particularly the unparalleled portrait of the suffering servant that Isaiah painted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 53. And in verses 22 through 25, Peter either quoted or alluded to Isaiah 53 at least six times, which is not, um, or shouldn't come as a surprise, because Isaiah 53 is arguably the clearest explanation in the entire Bible of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now that may sound like a complicated concept, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Let me put it very simply. Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins. That's what we mean by substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the, the heart of the good news of salvation, that God loves us so much that he sacrificed his own son on the cross so straying sinners like us could be found and forgiven and follow Jesus. 
And so as Peter elaborated on the example of Jesus that he set for us to follow, he focused on the vicarious nature of Christ's suffering. Look at the next verse, next two verses that really end the chapter here. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. After making such a big deal about the perfect example that Jesus set for us and how we are to suffer when we don't deserve it, Peter wanted to make sure that we knew that Jesus didn't just live and die to provide us a good example for the way that we should live. There are a lot of people in the world who think that's all that Jesus was about. He just came to this earth. He, he lived on this planet, kind of like a Gandhi character, right? Just to be a good example for us to follow. But Peter wanted to make sure we understood that Jesus' suffering was not merely exemplary, but ex, expiatory. Expiatory. It's an interesting theological term. It just simply means atoned for or paid for our sin. In other words, it was not just an example. It was for our expiation. It was for the atoning or the payment for our sin. In other words, Jesus was not only serving us as a standard, but he also served as a substitute. So he was clearly a standard for us to live by, but he was also a substitute for us. And again, this is the essence of the gospel, that Jesus didn't deserve to be treated the way that he was treated, but he didn't resist, uh, and he refused to retaliate, but patiently endured all the false accusations and all the brutal abuse to pay the penalty for my sins and your sins and all those who would repent and believe in him. And so I want to just look at these last two verses, verses 24 and 25, and I want, to, I want us to see tonight and consider two aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, we see that Christ is our sinless substitute, and in verse 25, we see that Christ is our steadfast shepherd, our loyal, dedicated, devoted shepherd. Another way you could look at this would be that in verse 24, we see the reason for Christ's suffering. And in verse 25, we see the result of Christ's suffering. So let's look first of all that, at this first aspect, that Christ is our sinless substitute. And really, the, I think the, the premier line in this section is this opening line of verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That word bore is, literally means to carry up, and it was Old Testament language here that Peter was drawing from, the sacrificial system, and this was the word that was used to describe how the lambs would be carried up 
by the priest and laid on the altar and slaughtered in the place of the people to atone for their sin. But in Jesus' case, rather than simply bringing the sacrifice to the altar, he became the sacrifice. As our great high priest, he he laid down on the cross, as it were, and was slaughtered in our place to pay for our sin. In James chapter 2, verse 21, this same word is used of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar, which we know was intended by God to be a foreshadowing of the cross when he would offer up his own beloved son as a sacrifice for sin. And it's this biblical imagery of of a father sacrificing a son that we see weave throughout both the Old and New Testament is is what we refer to as, or I should say, is, is why there's some people today, even in the church, who have a hard time with this whole doctrine that we refer to as penal substitution. In other words, that Jesus was punished as our substitute. He, was, he, was, uh, he bore the consequences for our sin. And the, and the doctrine of penal substitution is under attack today because some claim that it's just barbaric to believe that God would punish sin by death to begin with. I mean, really, God's going to actually send somebody to hell for all eternity because they sinned for 70 years, 75 years on this earth? It just seems barbaric. And worse, they say it's ludicrous to think that God would torture and abuse his own son to pay for the sins of others. And they liken it to cosmic child abuse. But again, if we go back to Isaiah 53, and you can go back there with me because we're going to read a few verses just to remind you of where Peter's coming from here. Isaiah made it crystal clear that God the Father gave up his Son, and God the Son gave up his life for us. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 10, what I consider to be the most, one of the most shocking verses in all of the Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, talking about God crushing his son Jesus, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And really, the heart of Isaiah 53 is in in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed and stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And then look at 
Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So Peter was simply repeating the words of Isaiah when he said that Christ bore our sins. And the word sins here means falling short of a target or missing the mark. It's the word harmatia in the Greek. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen, what? Short of the glory of God. And so we all fall short of God's standard and purpose for our lives. And and we deserve to be punished for all the ways we sin against God. And yet Jesus willingly bore the consequences for our sin. He endured God's wrath on the cross. He experienced separation from God when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And none of this was because of his sins, but our sins. Because he had no sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. He who had no sin was made sin. On our behalf. He was punished for our rebellion. Our pride. Our lust. Our greed. Our selfishness, our anger, our lies, our cheating, our stealing, our filthy thoughts, our impure motives, our evil deeds. And so we need to realize that it was because of our sins that Jesus had to die. It was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Notice how Peter included himself here by acknowledging that his sin contributed to the death of Christ. He didn't say he himself bore your sins. No, he said he bore our sins. I got an email today from Reformation Heritage Books, a a book company that I often uh, buy books from and they were... uh, promoting a new book by William Perkins, who was an interesting character. He was kind of in between the Reformation or the Reformers and the Puritans. So he was, he, he was a student of the Reformers, but he was also the teacher to the Puritans. And a lot of the most well-known Puritans that we uh, esteem and, and, and read, uh, he was their pastor, he was their professor. And the question that he posed, and there was a quote on this, in this email, who crucified Christ? That was the question. And this was a quote from William Perkins. The serious consideration of this, that the very Son of God himself suffered all the pains and torments of hell on the cross for our sins is the most effectual means to stir up our hearts to a godly sorrow for them. In other words, you really want to be Experience true godly sorrow for your sin? Consider the fact that Jesus suffered all the pains and torments of hell on the cross because of your sins. He went on, every man must be settled without doubt that he was the man who crucified Christ. 
that he is to be blamed, as well as Judas and Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews. His sins were the nails, the spear, and the thorns that pierced him. And so Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Literally, in some of your translations may say what? Tree. Which is what that word originally meant in the Greek there is typically how Peter referred to the cross. You can see him reference the the, the cross as the tree. Acts 5.30, Acts 10.39. You say, why did he call it a tree? Well, because the Jews didn't crucify criminals. What did they do with them? In the Old Testament, they were commanded to what? To stone them. But if a criminal was especially evil, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, God commanded them to hang their dead body on a tree until evening as a mark of shame. And of course, we know the parallel that Paul made in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I think this is just one of the many paradoxes surrounding the cross. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was wounded so that we could be healed. He died so that we could live, specifically that that we could live a holy and righteous life. Notice what he says here. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might just keep on living the way we've always lived. No, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The idea here when he he talks about dying to sin, is is getting away from sin. Being separated from sin. Parting ways with sin. Ceasing to sin. And in fact, that word there is in the plural, even though it's in the singular in our English text, so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. I think it's an interesting parallel there. He himself bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sins. That we would stop doing those sins that he had to die for, that nailed him to the cross. In other words, because Jesus died for our sins, we shouldn't keep committing them or continuing to live a sinful life. Look a page over, probably, maybe just on the other side of your Bible, at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Peter says this, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He was reminding them of their past lifestyle. And he said, hey, you had plenty of time to do that. Those days are over. Now you need to live to righteousness. 
We know, according to the book of Romans, that when Christ died on the cross for our sins, he delivered us from both the penalty of sin and also the power of sin. That means we no longer are slaves to sin. Sin has no control over us. We do not have to um, obey its demands. We don't have to sin anymore. Romans chapter 6. You could turn back there if you'd like. Romans chapter 6. This is where Paul unpacks this whole idea of dying to sin and living to righteousness. This is Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, we're a new creation. We're a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the next time you're tempted by some sin, maybe one of your uh, past sinful habits that you were... Uh, a part of when you were, before you were saved, you can simply look that sin right in the face that's tempting you and say, I'm dead to you. Or you're dead to me. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, stop using your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your hands and your feet to do sinful stuff. Instead, use the, your body parts, if you will, to honor God, to be an instrument of righteousness. And then verse 17, but thanks be to God that Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In other words, we went from being a slave to sin to a slave of Christ. And he's a much better master, amen? Back to 1 Peter chapter 2. When he says, so we might die to sin and live to righteousness, again, he's just reminding us that the reason why God saved us is so that we could live a holy and righteous life that is pleasing to him. You say, what does it mean to live a righteous life? Well, just break it down, to live right, to do the right thing in the eyes of God and also in the eyes of man. Look at verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 20, you remember this lot from Sunday. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So let's not forget that Jesus didn't die just to keep us from going to hell when we die. 
but to transform the way we live our lives here and now. It's the abundant life that Jesus promised us. There's eternal life, yes, that we all should be looking forward to, but there's abundant life now in Christ when we live right before the eyes of God. And I think it also begs the question, why should we keep committing the very same sins that require Jesus to die on the cross in our place? Again, the next time you're tempted to sin, think to yourself, Jesus had to die for that. Why would I do that? Why, why would I be entertained by that for which Christ had to die? I told you Sunday that Kelly had handed out this devotional to all of our family members wanting us to read it during the uh, preparation for Good Friday and, and Easter. And it's, it's called Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And it's just a compilation of, of, of excerpts from different sermons or, or um, books or devotionals from, uh, you know, old dead guys like Martin Luther and, and uh, John Calvin and guys that are alive and well today, um, Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson and others. But one of my favorite Chapters was an excerpt from J.C. Rao's expository thoughts for the gospel. He said this, let us learn from the story of the passion always to hate sin with a great hatred. Sin was the cause of all of our Savior's sufferings. Our sins twisted the crown of thorns. Our sins drove the nails into his hands and feet. On account of our sins, his blood was shed. Surely the thought of Christ crucified should make us loathe all sin. And what's more, I think what should keep us from sinning is not just that we hate sin, but that we love Jesus. And even more importantly, that he loves us and gave himself up for us. I love how Paul said it in Galatians 2.20. This is where our high school ministry got its name, 2.20, if you ever wondered. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. So we are to live to righteousness. And then notice the last phrase in verse 24, for by his wounds you were healed, which we know is a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 5, because we just read it. But what you may not know here is that this word wounds, for by his wounds you were healed, it's actually a singular in the original. By his wound you are healed, or you were healed. Literally by his stripe, you were healed. 
which is likely, I think, a reference to the damage done to Jesus' back by the whip that had these jagged pieces of bone and metal tied into the ends, which an experienced soldier could use to fillet the skin off a victim's back. Perhaps Peter was referring to not just the scourging, the, the, the whipping, but, but all the physical abuse that Jesus endured, which left his entire body one massive welt oozing with blood. You're like, Ken, that's disgusting. Well, Isaiah 52 verse 14, which leads up to Isaiah 53, implies that Jesus was beaten beyond human recognition. And Isaiah 53.3 actually says that he was so disfigured that people couldn't even look at him. For by his stripe, by his wound, you were healed. Now I think it's important just to pause here and, and make sure you realize that Peter was not talking about physical healing here. Which is how this verse is often interpreted by Prosperity preachers who believe and teach that Christians should be healthy and wealthy. And according to their misleading theology, anyone who has enough faith, they say, can be healed from any disease by virtue of the fact that Jesus died to make us healthy. And if that's true, I would ask, then why did some of God's choicest servants in the New Testament have to deal with sickness? Paul, admitted to some kind of thorn in the flesh, could have been physical, and even after much prayer for healing, for deliverance, God chose not to take it away, but to prove to him that his grace was sufficient for him. One of Paul's co-workers, Epaphroditus, endured some kind of life-threatening sickness. He was sick unto death, almost died, Philippians chapter 2, and just a simple passing comment should settle the argument. 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul said he left Trophimus sick at Miletus. In other words, if Paul, as an apostle, had the gift of healing and God wanted everyone to be healthy, then why didn't he heal them? Because that's not God's will for everybody. The Bible teaches the only place where there is no disease or, or, or death is where? In heaven. Why? Because we'll have glorified bodies there. But I think the answer to this is right here in the text. It says, for by his wounds you will be healed. You are healed. What? You were healed. So this is, this is past tense, which means it's something that has already happened. Not, not that he was doing something for the future so that you wouldn't get covid This is clearly a, a reference to salvation, how Christ's death heals us spiritually from the deadly disease of sin. In fact, back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, we find one of the, for lack of better word, grossest descriptions of sin anywhere in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 1 
Verse 4, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. So Isaiah describing the rebellion of God's people here. And then verse 5, he says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged or softened with oil. And some would say he was giving a description of a leper. And if you know anything about leprosy, it is a disgusting disease that just corrodes your body. And it's a picture, leprosy is a picture of sin. In the Bible. So, back in 1 Peter, Christ's death on the cross his wound, his stripe, healed us, accomplished, secured the salvation of every person who repents and trusts in him for salvation. By his wound, you were healed. You were saved. You were delivered from the leprous nature of sin. So Christ is our sinless substitute, but then secondly and and quickly, Christ is our steadfast shepherd. Look at verse 25. He says, for you are continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Again, Peter quoting here from Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray, right? And we know this is how the Bible likens all of us, whether we like it or not. We are sheep who have wandered away from the fold. And if if you know anything about sheep, they are dumb. They are defenseless. And they have a terrible sense of direction. And if a sheep gets lost, they're in great danger from enemies because they can't protect themselves And they're also not able to find their way home on their own. They desperately need someone to rescue them. And that's what God was referring to in Ezekiel chapter 34 when he was confronting the the shepherds of Israel who had failed to lead his flock and to feed his flock. This is how he described the people of God, the people of Israel, Ezekiel 34, 5 and 6, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. In other words, the earthly shepherds dropped the ball. And so this is what God goes on to say. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. And I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel, there they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I would lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered, 
bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. By the way, I think that is a prophecy of the Messiah. That Jesus is who he was referring to, or who that text refers to. Even though we know in the Old Testament God is likened to a shepherd, right? Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, this is clearly a reference here when he says, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Look at chapter 5 really quick. 1 Peter 5 Notice this similar reference, therefore I exhorted the elders among you as your fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you, not lording it over those, or excuse me, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor is yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter uses the same two words, these words shepherd, which is poimena, and overseer or guardian, the word episkopos here. These are the same two words that that Peter used for pastors and elders in chapter 5. These are the words that Paul used to describe pastors and elders. And so just like pastors and and elders watch over the souls of those who've been entrusted to their care as those who will have to give an account, even so Jesus watches over us, but his care as the chief shepherd goes far beyond the care of any of his under shepherds. Jesus is a way better shepherd than I'll ever be, or all the pastors and elders of the church combined could ever be for you. Jesus is the best shepherd you've got. Jesus himself in Matthew 9.36, seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He told the parable of the lost sheep, right, in Luke 15. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 behind and go out after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Luke went on to record in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus, in John 10.11, says, I am the good, what? Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In that same chapter, verse 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Remember who Peter was writing to here. When he says, now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He was seeking to comfort suffering saints who were being slandered and persecuted and abused, and he wanted them to rest in the matchless care of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a shepherd and guardian of all those who place their faith in him. They, they were safe and secure in his loving arms. 
And again, this is a good reminder for us that Jesus didn't just save us and then leave us to ourselves. No, he watches over us, he feeds us, he guides us, he protects us and equips and enables us to live in a way that pleases God. Ephesians 13, verse 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Perhaps you're here tonight and you know that you are lost in your sin. And you need someone to rescue you. That someone is Jesus Christ. And you can come, him, come to him tonight. All you need to do is to do what it says here in our text. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned Now you've returned. And Paul likened, or Jamie Peter here, likened getting saved to a sheep returning to the shepherd. You say, how does that happen? Well, you acknowledge that you turned away from the shepherd. You turned your back on the shepherd. And you turned back to him. You turned toward him. This is a, a reference to repentant faith. Turning from your sin to Christ who died in your place on the cross to pay the punishment for your sin so you could be forgiven and live a life that pleases God. And so when you stand before God someday and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You can simply say, because I believe that Jesus died in my place. Period. Jesus died in my place. That's the only way I could get to heaven. Perhaps you are here tonight you already know Jesus Christ, but you've wandered away from him. I want to invite you to come back to him tonight. Repent of whatever sins led you away from the Lord and seek his forgiveness and he will cleanse you and he will restore you. Peter knew what he was talking about here when he said, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Peter, Peter knew what it was like to fall away from the Lord. He, he knew what it was like to blow it big time. You may remember that when Jesus warned his disciples that they would all fall away, Peter insisted that he would, he would never, I'll never fall away. Even if everyone else falls away, I will never, I will die for you. And in just a few short hours, as you know, he denied that he knew Jesus not just once, but three times. But as the faithful shepherd that Jesus is, he restored Peter, didn't he? In John 21, he had gone off back up to the Sea of Galilee, went, went back to fishing. Thought his days following Jesus perhaps were over. He had blown it. He had messed up. There's no way he could be used by the Lord ever again. John 21, verse 15, when 
They had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of, these, John, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him, the Lord, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? To give Peter three opportunities to reaffirm his love for every time he denied him. And so as a faithful shepherd, Christ not only restored Peter that, at that moment, but he called him to labor with him and to help him shepherd his sheep which he was doing by writing this letter to God's sheep. Not just back in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, but tonight here at Lakeside Bible Church, we are his sheep. And God is using Peter, Christ is using Peter to shepherd us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our sinless substitute, but he's also the steadfast shepherd of our souls. And not only did he die to, to deliver us from death and hell, but he died to grant us abundant life the best life imaginable that comes when we do what's right. When we get back in a right relationship with you and we live a, a, a righteous life that, that brings you honor and glory and can be used by you to be a light for Christ in a lost and dying world. So we thank you. We praise you for the cross. Pray that you would Bless our time of communion together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.